Well, I appreciate you being reaching out and allowing me to be a part of it because there's uh, there's really not many people I, I like and respect more than Tim. And it, it really is such a sad thing because he, he was uh, so great what he did, worked so hard, loved his family so much. And then to have the time uh, in retirement taken away from him with this uh, with Alzheimer's is really a sad thing. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Welcome to the Fire Pit with Matt Janella. Tim Rosefort spent his life telling stories about golf's greatest players. Now it's time to tell Rosie's story. A towering figure in the golf media, Tim died on January 11th at the age of 66 from complications related to early-onset Alzheimer's. It's hard to believe anything could fell this pillar of strength. In press rooms and on the course, he moved slowly but diligently, the bow in his legs a byproduct of the sports he played growing up in Brewster, New York. He once told me that as an undersized offensive lineman in college, subbing in on special teams, he had to block Joe Klecko, the future all-pro defensive lineman for the New York Jets. Young Rosefort was driven back so hard by Klecko that Tim could smell the burn of the rubber on the bottom of his cleats. No shock to anyone who knew Rosie, Klecko didn't block a punt that day. He was proud of that and so much more. Tim was proud of his family which included his wife, Genevieve, their two daughters, Jenna and Molly. And he was proud of the men they married, Nick and Mason. He doted on his three grandchildren, and he played a significant role in the life of Grayson. He helped raise Grayson as though he was his own son. Tim stepped in and stepped up because he felt it was the right thing to do. In all the years I knew him, which goes back to Sports Illustrated in the mid-90s, Tim always did the right thing. Quietly and consistently, he didn't want pats on the back. He just wanted to better himself and those around him. Tim had long been celebrated as golf's ultimate insider. He built his career not on dazzling typing skills, but the kind of tenacity that held back Joe Klecko. Tim was always renting a car, hopping a shuttle, catching a plane, and he always made one more call on one of his two phones. Once Tim started reporting a story, He never stopped. He learned from his father, a garbage man who saw dignity in hard work. As a kid, Tim often rode around in the truck, either helping out the crew or sliding around in the cab while reading books. His first set of golf clubs were cobbled together from what his dad would rescue out of the trash bins. That kid from humble beginnings, the oldest of four in his family, went on to win Lifetime Achievement Awards for his writing. The craft didn't come easy for him, So he compensated with conviction, filling his stories with details no one else had and anecdotes only he could get. His first beat was dirt track car racing, and he once interviewed Doc Gooden as a Little League All-Star. He covered over 150 majors, winning some 40 awards and writing four books along the way. In all of his travels, Tim rarely missed a chance to tee it up at all of golf's greatest citadels. His incomparable Rolodex coming in quite handy for setting up a match. He wouldn't want to play for much, and by the end, he preferred to play for nothing at all. A plus eight at asking the tough questions, 
Tim was a good, let's say, 10 handicap on the course. But it wasn't because of a lack of effort. It never was with Tim. From Sports Illustrated to Golf Digest and Golf World and then to Golf Channel, I seemed to always be somewhere right behind him. And what a good place to be. Tim never stopped being a lead blocker for me, opening holes so broad and inviting that even I could run right through him. It was as if I had a bodyguard, a guardian angel. I wouldn't hesitate to call him a big brother. And although that felt so special, I know I wasn't alone. Tim Rosefort was beloved because he was a great teammate for so many of us. The godfather of golf journalists, Tim led by example, selflessly and unconditionally always supporting someone in need. No one ever outworked him, he had no enemies, and everyone called him back. And when I asked a long list of Tim's friends and colleagues to help me produce this podcast, he'd smile knowing they all called me back. So settle down, settle in. The Tim Rosefort story here is about to begin. My goal was to out Rosie Tim Rosefort on his own story. Upon hearing about his diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's, which goes back to the summer of 2020, I did what he taught me to do. Be intrepid. On that note, we start with Jerry Tardy, who was the editor-in-chief of Golf Digest for over four decades, who, throughout this podcast, offers his perspective on Tim's incredible life and legacy. He was the bridge from the past to the present in terms of the way journalism is practiced. You know, Charlie Price, as an example, used to take a month to write one column. That's all he did. He wrote one column a month. And it was the words on paper that matter. That's a thing of the past now. What Tim brought to it is he could do all the stuff. Not that, not that he was a, a, a technologist, but, but he, he ushered in social media, the, the digital age, being on television. It all came together with, with Tim. And what he brought with him was preparedness. And he took that from the old world. So he was that bridge from the old world of journalism to the modern one. And I would add the one thing that he didn't have that so many guys in his profession have, and we're all guilty of it, I think, except for Tim, is he didn't have that cynicism, that cynics virus that so many writers have. And it comes from hanging out in bars and press tents and talking to ourselves and in many cases trying to write like Dan Jenkins. Um, he, he's not, he was never a cynic. He loved it and, he, and it's why people trusted him because he wasn't gonna take advantage of you. Tim told me that it was guys like Davis Cessna, an incredibly connected member at Seminole and Pine Valley who helped shape his life and career. I asked Davis what made Tim so special. The thing that you immediately recognize about Tim Rosefort is that he asks thoughtful questions from, from his heart and he, and he listens to the answer. Here's Craig Dolch, another Florida-based writer who goes back to the early 80s with Tim. We all loved about Tim is he earned everything he ever got in this business. Nothing was ever given to him. 
And if anything, he's given an awful lot back to the business than he's ever taken from the business. Mark Mulvey was the legendary editor of Sports Illustrated in the 80s and early 90s who hired Tim from the Palm Beach Post in 1994. Tim worked, you know, God knows that he worked hard, you know. Writing did not come easy to him, you know. But he understood that if you saturated a story with facts and let the facts flow in a logical order, you had a hell of a story. Here's Jim Nance on his friend, Tim Rosefort. I lean on Nance later in the podcast for his insight and information about Alzheimer's. So we start with a love of the game, undeniable. And then you go with the inter- in the integrity quotient, which, I mean, I, I, I don't know how you have so many scoops and so much inside information and not have people that feel like they've been burned. I, I, I don't know of anybody that ever felt like Tim ever burned them on anything. And I think what it is, is that he's just such a good person that people realize he was doing his job. He worked it harder than anybody else. And he did it with an understanding of the sensitivity of the information, how it affected each individual. So he gave his audience the truth. And he gave the subjects that he was covering, he gave them truth. And he gave them, if you will, uh, a complete understanding that I'm going to treat this with integrity. It was a love of people. Tim has that. We'll hear from John Hawkins throughout. Hawk was a colleague at Golf World and Golf Digest, and together they did some of their best work. Very few people brought that type of intensity and compassion Willingness to share, willingness to, to, his knowledge was your knowledge. And there's not, not everybody's like that. He was the greatest teammate in history of of golf writing. And we could go a hundred years and that would still be said. And then there's Matt Haggerty, Golf Channel's coordinating producer who started working with Tim in the early 2000s. You know, he knew so many people. He was really connected. You know, he was a heavyweight. That was, that was my first impression of him. And then as we got to go, you know, like as we started to, you know, evolve, then he really became like a, um, like a, like a big brother to me uh, in a way, you know, um, you know, he would, I, I've told this story before, but he wasn't afraid to tell me to tuck in my shirt. He wasn't afraid when I was a kid, you know, to act more professional, you know, like, he, you know, I, I think he, I mean, he liked me, you know, and I, and I was lucky that he liked me. And when he likes you, he's, you know, he's honest and he'll tell you how he feels. I mean, I think he's honest with everybody, but he told me how he felt, you know, and a lot of that stuff was really important. And then when I had my first child, you know, I had a daughter and he would, you know, he would give me advice on parenting. He would say, you can't be so direct. You can't be so direct with your kids. You know, he was always there for me, man. From the day, from the, from the, from the, you asked, I mean, I'm, I'm just going on and on and on. But like when you asked the first time I met Tim, like all these moments and memories flood back. And I spoke to Molly Solomon, the executive producer of the Golf Channel. Tim would always track her down and demand coaching on how and why he could get better on TV. And that's what always frustrated him is that. I didn't have that much feedback. I'd say, okay, buddy, you know, 
you don't need those cards. Like he always had cards on the set, right? And he'd rely on his cards. I'd say, Timmy, you know this stuff. I just want you to talk and have a conversation with the audience, just like you have with me. You don't need those cards, but they were a crutch. He was like, I know they're a crutch. So I always wanted him to believe in himself as much as I believed in him. As you can see, this podcast is running a little longer than the rest. And there are reasons for that. I set out to tell the story of his career while also celebrating the life of an incredible man. And part of me never really wanted to finish this project because by working on it, talking to so many people who had so many fond memories and incredible anecdotes was cathartic. I've done a lot of laughing, a lot of crying, and like I said, I just wanted to make him proud. So let's go back to the early 80s in Florida. Jeff Russell, Molly Solomon's husband, who would go on to be Tim's boss at Golf World Magazine and work with Tim at the Golf Channel, was in his early 20s. He was as fresh as fresh gets, and he was new to covering the LPGA. I will never forget that Tim welcomed me from the from the day I walked in. You know, he was interested in me, and he took the time to find out who I was and what, you know, what my background was. And, and of course, I loved to play golf and so did Tim. And we pretty quickly, we pretty quickly, you know, he was inviting me out to, to play golf and we'd go and, and play, you know, and, you know, even on days when he was, when he was working and had a deadline, you know, he would, we'd go and, and play golf somewhere early, you know, it was always kind of Tim's choice and Tim, you know, to, you know, and, and we, and that's how we met. And I just couldn't believe, you know, Tim at that time was a, you know, he's a big deal in the Golf Writers Association of America. I don't remember if he was president yet, but he was an award winner. He was winning, you know, he was winning writing awards and, and, and all the players knew him. And here was this guy, you know, he took me under his, under his wing. And, um, and it was fantastic. You know, it was fantastic. Made me feel like, like I belong, but also pretty quickly made me feel like, wow, you know, I can, you know, I can do this. And, and you'd, you know, you'd spend a, you'd spending a month there, you know, the, we'd go to the tournament the next week and Thursday or, or, or Friday the you know, the issue of the magazine, we get to the press room and, you know, Tim would pick it up and read it and come up and go, you know, nice job. That was a good story. Or, Hey, you got that note. That was good. Or, you know, it was, it was awesome. It was great. He was, you know, could not have been nicer, sweeter, and more encouraging, you know, to a 25-year-old kid who was trying to get going in the business. Back to Craig Dolch for a recap of Tim's resume of Florida papers. He worked at the Tampa Times. He worked at the Clearwater Sun. He worked at the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. At that point, the uh, Palm Beach Post, where I was working, they went and hired him to be their golf writer, which is a great move on their part. And he worked there for a few years. And then Sports Illustrated started getting really serious about doing their Golf Plus coverage. So Mark Mulvoy had hired Tim to come in and really kind of head up, be the kind of fullback, the guy that would go out and break the news, do all the hard work. And so Tim worked for Sports Illustrated for about three or four or five years. It was actually just a little over two years at Sports Illustrated for Tim, from 94 to 96. Here's Mark Mulvoy again. And Timmy, when I hired him, I said, Timmy, I really want you to be the Peter King of golf. I said, I want people, when they read your stuff, to find out things about themselves they don't even know, which is the way Peter, of course, 
a Hall of Fame journalist, uh, covered pro football. You know, Timmy and Peter, you know, they're not Rick Riley behind the, the, at the typewriter, uh, people like that, uh, uh, Gary Smith, but they're great, great, great reporters. And you can have a tremendous, have tremendous success in, in, in Sports Illustrated or any other publication if you're a great reporter, a dependable reporter, and nothing stands in your way of getting the story. And that was Timmy. Now in the big leagues, surrounded by an insane roster of talent, Tim's self-doubt was immersing itself into his keyboard. I kept having to tell him, I said, Timmy, you can't compare yourself to, to Jaime. You can't compare yourself to Rick. You can't compare yourself to Al Shipnick. I said, these guys are different stylists. I said, but you bring something to the table that we desperately need at Sports Illustrated. Reportage. You're the Peter King of golf. And that's how you'll thrive here. Believe me. And he did. Here's Jaime Diaz, another legend of modern golf journalism, who offers his perspective on why Tim's time at Sports Illustrated was short-lived. Well, I'm being honest. Uh, it, they were difficult days in many ways because it was really challenging. Uh, it was a big step up for Tim. He wanted it, and he tried really hard, and he did a lot of really good stuff. But the, uh, you know, the atmosphere at Sports Illustrated was, uh, was cold. Uh, compared to where he had worked. You know, he had worked in kind of family situations where he got to know the sports editor. And of course, everybody really loved him. So he would lean on those kind of nurturing relationships. And it was hard for him to get that at Sports Illustrated. Having said all that, you know, hey, uh, Mark Mulboy hired him and, and they remained great friends. Uh, but I just think the atmosphere was one that was challenging more than the actual work. He just, he always like me, you know, but maybe even a little more in some ways, he felt like he always had to prove himself and um, had some insecurities there. And he just didn't get a lot of approval at Sports Illustrated in the same way he was used to. So um, I think he always felt like, man, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. And, and probably drove himself a little crazy. Uh, and so in that respect, even though Sports Illustrated was a great place and in some place, in some ways, the epitome of, of sports writing in this country, he did better by going to golf world. Uh, by going back to golf world because there he could, you know, get comfortable with people and they understood him better. And it was just less of a, a big machine and more of a family. Mulvoy left Sports Illustrated in 1996 and so did Rosa Fort. If I had not retired, he would have stayed at Sports Illustrated, believe me, a lot longer than that. I had a specific idea in mind as to what he brought to the magazine which is what I had for Peter and, you know, Riley and Shipnuck and everybody else we brought. And I don't think my successor or successors, you know, they just wanted to take the magazine and do different things, which is fine. That's their prerogative. But if I had stayed longer and I wasn't, uh, 13 years was long enough to put out a weekly magazine, I think Timmy would have stayed certainly as long as I did. Feeling snubbed by SI, Jaime Diaz confirms Tim was now even more motivated to prove his critics wrong. Every knock back drove Tim 10 steps forward. Like, you better, if you're going to knock him back, you better be prepared for what's next. Because what was next after Sports Illustrated was probably one of the greatest runs in modern golf journalism, in my opinion. I agree with you. I mean, he really is a fiery competitor. And uh, he definitely would keep it hard inside himself to get even you know, and to show everybody. And that was a great motivator. And uh, he didn't talk about it much, uh, but, you know, it would come out that it was there, that that was really, in many ways, what took him the extra mile when he was doing something to do it spe in a special way. 
Here's Jeff Russell on the acquisition of a Hall of Fame cleanup hitter. You know, working at the other shop, he was a formidable opponent. You know, he was he was he was a pain in the ass. He he got you know, he got information that 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 we didn't have. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't never really never really got the full story about what happened to him at Sports Illustrated. All I know is they one day he became available. You know, he became available and we couldn't hire him fast enough. And when he came to Golf World, um, and we were probably, so that was probably 95, 96, 97 in there. So, I, you know, and, and I was his, I was his de facto editor for, for until 2000 when I became in, you know, entitled the editor. So I was his editor for 15 years at Golf World. I think we had a great relationship and, and it, it, you know, it was, it was just a comfort to have somebody on the staff that you could say, Tim, I need to, I need to know what happened here. You know, I need you to, you know, what, what, what happened with Tiger and Tim Fincham? What happened with, uh, you know, what happened with Annika, you know, Sorenstam and the, and, you know, I mean, what happened, you know, John Daly, he fell off the wagon. What happened? He would go and find out. He would go and get the information. And, you know, yeah, there might have been times where you felt, I felt like he was protecting um, and, and, and maybe not telling me everything he knew. But if I pushed him on it, he, he would, you know, if I, if I really made it a big deal, I usually got what I wanted. A lot of times Tim would say, you know, if you would just if you would just back off here and, and let's take the long view, I think this will I think this is we're going to have enough that we can use it now and, and we're going to continue to be able to get information from this source if we need it. And it and he was I thought it was a great partnership and I never. Never felt like like it it it, it cost golf world, you know any anything in terms of, I mean he he instantly made our team better and and I think not only because he made us better but because the other guys lost him it's 1996 Tiger is turning pro and a motivated Rosafort gets a seat at Golf Digest table of talent here's Jerry Tardy on getting access to Tim Rosafort even in the beginning he he was grounded in that South Florida world of golf pros and he knew he knew golf he knew the tour and he was he was a great reporter uh and that even even at the very beginning that was the case uh so so it was an opportunity to get connected to that world um and have insight into what players were thinking and what they were going to do before they did it. Um, Tim wasn't a poet uh, and, uh, and he wasn't a comedian. So he, he, he didn't bring that style of writing to the magazine, but what he brought were facts, insight, uh, the real stuff of what was happening. And that was the excitement of having Tim join our team. While Tim was dominating the annual byline count at Golf World, a weekly, and contributing to the occasional story in Golf Digest, a monthly, in the late 90s, he was covering the end of Nancy Lopez's incredible career. 
we grew up together. He watched me grow up on the LPGA tour and uh, you know, he was one of those writers that made me who I am. Hmm. Um, wow. You know, he was that friendly face in the room when you, when, you know, the press was all over you talking to you and you could, and you saw him, he just, he just made me always feel happy. He had, he had that face, you know, when you, you know how people are, when you see somebody come in the room, like, oh my God, there they come. And then you have that person that, oh, that's Tim. You know, that's the way he made me feel all the time. And uh, he was just the best. And I just, I, I will pray for him because I just hate this news. Um, but yeah, he was, he was special. He was good at what, he was great at what he did, not just good. He, um, I think all the players felt that way whenever he was around us um, and appreciate his talent and what he did for sports. Absolutely. He was the best. I spoke to Bob Ford, the iconic pro at both Oakmont and Seminole, who was Rosefort's close friend. Well, he, he was extraordinary. And he, uh, I think he, he get, gained everybody's trust um, that so that, I mean, his Rolodex like yours would be phenomenal. And, you know, when he needed to dig something out of the dirt, he, he dug it out. And when Rose, you saw Rosie on your phone, you wanted to talk to him. So, and he had that relationship with, you know, all the stars, everybody. And uh, so I, I think uh, just trust and faith uh, that we all had in Timmy was, was one of his great, great assets. And not many players appreciate good writing especially good reporting, and the history of golf more than Ben Crenshaw. Going back all those years, Matt, he was, he was a bulldog for getting information. He was very, very good at that. And, uh, but people respected him greatly. Uh, he was insider guy, and he wanted to report that, and he did it so well so many times. Um, but I know as, as a writer and a, and a close observer of, of the professional golf scene, he was one of the best. I mean, he, you know, people knew to go to him to see what the players actually were thinking. They trusted him uh, and, and it could get the information quicker than other people could. Ron Syrak who has AP roots and a similar dogged reporting style, offers his perspective on his former colleague at Golf World and Golf Digest. Baseball is one of my passions. Peter Gammons was the guy when I was, when I was uh, uh, first starting out in journalism. As, uh, he was the guy who knew everything. Tim was the guy in golf who knew everything. Back to Jeff Russell again, who had become the editor-in-chief at Golf World magazine in 2000 and was riding the Rosefort train all the way to relevancy within the booming industry of golf. The moment when I realized, hey, we are now, we're now as competitive a magazine as any other magazine. You know, I mean, you know, listen, I, Sports Illustrated, you know, always be a fan of Sports Illustrated. You know, what an amazing, amazing magazine it was. And, and Golf Plus was, was terrific. Um, and, and, you know, you never, there's never a week where you just felt like, oh my God, what are they going to have this week? You know, but, but I remember, and, and maybe you do too, when Tiger Woods was, you know, he was maybe two years into his, his PGA tour career, he turned pro and he'd been out there like two or three years. And he, and he got into a, he got into a, a showdown 
with with Tim Fincham in the PGA Tour, where he was basic. I forget. I'd have to go and look. Right. But he was he was they they wanted him. You know, they were holding him to the same requirements for, you know, tournaments and tournament releases and all and all this stuff that any other player had. Right. And 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 Tiger was Tiger was basically saying, look, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I, I, if you're going to hold me to that, I might go play the European tour and, or I'll go find somewhere else to play. And, and this was kind of percolating and Tiger decided that, I don't know how this happened, but Tiger, Tiger decided to tell Tim Rosefort about it. That's where he went with, with his story. And we got that story because of Tim Rosefort and whatever relationship he had with Tiger and and whatever whatever reputation Tim had with Tiger and and it was a we put it on the cover and it was you know it was um, a blockbuster story at a time when a weekly magazine could still have a blockbuster story and it got everyone's attention and it got the PGA Tour's attention and I remember thinking that week, like, man, people are talking about our magazine um, and the story that that we got, and that was that was Tim and 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 also John Hawkins. It was, you know, um, and that you know that was a nice. I think that was a nice collaboration for us and Golf Digest for for four four or five years. Tim and John working together, but but again, it was. You know, Tim was the the big hitter on that thing, and and we were, um, and 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 we benefited. It was it was huge. Enter stage John Hawkins, another gritty colleague who was also operating at the height of his powers. With their chemistry came a brotherly bond, and award winning work. Tim and I were both came from tough towns. I come from Baltimore. He came from Brewster, New York. We shared that. Um, my dad passed away when I was young. Tim didn't have an easy life growing up. He, he, he worked on his dad's uh, trash truck, as you know, and Tim had to work. We both shared that sort of us against the world mentality, blue collar kind of mindset. <clears throat> and we just, we hit it off. I, I, was, I was in awe of him uh, as a reporter, still am. As I said on our phone call a few a couple months back, Matt, nobody has had a more profound influence on my career than Tim Rosefort. Nobody. Yes, there was Rick Riley, Jaime Diaz, Alan Shipnuck, Michael Bamberger, Tom Callahan. Jenkins was still Jenkins. I loved Dave Anderson and Dave Kindred. No one could write funny like Bob Verdi. Garrity was always doing Garrity. But when Hawk and Rosie would combine forces the game's cage would rattle. More from Jaime Diaz. And Tim and John Hawkins had a great relationship. You know, Tim was the rock. John was the mercurial, you know, uh, I'd say borderline genius in many ways because uh, tremendous wordsmith, tremendous ability to turn a phrase, great writer. Kind of like Woodward and Bernstein a little bit, in, you know, in, in a golf sense. Woodward was Tim, you know, the solid reporter, who, who could always, you know, get anybody and, and John, the guy that could coalesce it into something really readable. And uh, those two guys, uh, they knew they had something and, and 
they took on big projects, a lot of ambition in both those guys. And they, they would identify what was really important in golf because Hawk had very passionate views about this is the story, man. You know, we got to get this guy. We got to get this issue out there. We got to do it like nobody else. And then, you know, Tim might feel similarly, but probably not to the same extent. But then when he was directed, you know, this is what we need. This is what we got to have. Nobody was better at getting it. So it was really formidable. And they did, you know, I'm thinking five or six of those things that were oral histories or just simply highly reported pieces, uh, long, maybe even had more than one, uh, you know, one installment and uh, very much probably, uh, well, I won't say the best work of their careers because they, they did great work individually as well. But I think as a team, that, that's probably as good a team as uh, golf writing's ever had. Long before the platform of podcasts, there was such a thing as a quote, oral history but it was done in print. Hawk and Rosie ride again, chronicling one of golf's greatest comebacks. I don't know whose idea it was um, to do an oral history. Back then, uh, we were always looking to get into Golf Digest because we got paid extra for it. And because it was the magazine, as you know, Golf World was the magazine with a great reputation, but, but, but Golf Digest was the rock star. Golf Digest was the much bigger book you know, three, 400 pages, some weeks, some months back then. And you always wanted to get into that one. And we came up with this idea and we were just met with nothing but help from all the principals. I think Tim got, and it's not like I didn't do any reporting. It just looked like I didn't compared to Tim. They kind of developed a, an interesting, you know, sort of an interesting format. They came up with a formula where, where they would work together, they were at work together on big pieces, and the Tiger and the Tour story was one of them. The um, the the nineteen ninety nine uh, final day of the Ryder Cup, you know, uh, was the was the big one that I remember. They, you know, that that was that day of that incredible American comeback um, to win on the final day, and they spent. Um, you know, they spent months talking to every player, everybody who had, you know, had anything to do with, with that, um, with that uh, comeback. That was just like putting pieces of a puzzle together. And that was fun. And he would just keep coming back with more and more material. And I would just keep on finding spots for it. I think it was just one of those cases where two guys had a kind of a common background and perfect a, a perfect mesh of skills it was too much good information to try to make a um to try to turn into a, a magazine article I, I even think at one point they they were you know they were talking to like a hollywood producer about about making a you know movie about it like maybe they were maybe a a, a documentary film about it I mean, but it doesn't get done without Tim's Tim's ability to report, Tim's dogged pursuit of information and his relationships with people to this day remain so powerful. It's why we're doing this, Matt, because so many people love, know Tim and love him. And and um that was I was the I was the prime beneficiary of Tim's greatest strengths for the better part of 10 years. 
Regardless of the awards and attaboys, recognition and respect, Tim never allowed himself to tap the brakes on his hustle and pursuit of perfection. No one was harder on Tim than Tim. A lot of people tried to convince him of his greatness, and that was the only time he turned his ears off. He loved coaching. He was allergic to accolades. Back to Jeff Russell, who again, knew Tim for 35 years and worked closely with him for 25 of those. As Jeff notes, the only coaching he needed was to get out of his own way. Tim operated, always operated from a sense of insecurity. You know, he, he, um, you know, he could, he could have, he could have 99 great weeks in a row and, and then have a week where he missed something, you know, or, uh, or maybe wrote a story that wasn't, that, that wasn't, um, you know, super polished and needed a little work. And then and it was like, man, it, it sent him into the doldrums. It was like he was starting all over and you had to remind him, you know, we used to say this, Hey, you know, I mean, you're Tim fucking Rosafort. That's all you needed to say to him. It's like, you are Tim, stop, stop worrying about it. You know, um, let's get back at it this week. You know, but you know, you're Tim fucking Rosafort. And, and you're going to hear that from Matt Haggerty too, you know, um, cause he was that way when he got to the golf channel. Pete McDaniel wrote for both golf digest and golf world, both Tim and Pete were always being asked to get something special on Tiger Woods. He did some blocking for me as well. You know, quiet as his gift. Uh, yeah. Some opportunities that I got, Tim recommended me. Don't know if I always succeeded at him. <laughs> I probably let him down a few times, but. but <laughs> I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> he, he said, this guy can do it. He can handle this. You know, you need to give him an opportunity. And, and I got opportunities. So, but Tim's one of the greatest guys. Um, if you had Tim on your team, you had a good teammate. I'll just put it that way. Um, funny guy, he and I played a lot of rounds of golf together. Really meticulous kind of guy. And the thing that made him such a success, <laughs> he worked, he was the hardest working man in golf, without a doubt. I couldn't, there was no way that anybody could, could outwork him. He was not going to let you do it. Prepared you know, to the nth doggone degree. Uh, if there was anything he didn't know, he was surely going to find out. Had more contacts than anybody in the game. And, and that was Tim Rosefort. I mean, talented and, and uh, personable and, um, and a real friend. And in our business, you could probably count your real friends on one hand. And, and Tim was certainly a real friend, no doubt about it. Back to Jeff Russell who was continuing to lean on Rosafort as a captain of the squad. I think Tim always had a really underrated talent for um, knowing, knowing what's a good story, what's maybe not a good story, knowing what the, what the angle is, what the angle should be and what the angle shouldn't be. Um, And I think he, he, you know, he was, he was a good sounding board for me as the editor when, when I wasn't, when I was trying to figure out a lot, you know, I, I reached a point where I wasn't always at the major championships on the, on the weekend, I would need to come home, you know, go back to the office and kind of, you know, run things from the office. And, and Tim became my kind of my, my boots on the ground at the tournament in trying to help me understand what was going on and, and, and what the stories were and what they should be. Um, 
he was very, he had a kind of a good, I, you know, you'd say he has an ear for music, you, you know, he had kind of a good ear for a good sense of what, what the angle should be. More from Jaime Diaz. I remember after 9-11 that the amount of time and work and uh, uh, chronicling he did with Jimmy Dunn was like incredibly, you know, uh, just, just, uh, you know, it was, it was a book length stuff almost. And of course, Bill Fields was, was, was writing the story. And, you know, it, it was uh, overwhelming Bill because Bill was a great researcher too. But I mean, that's the kind of thing when Tim got his teeth into something, he really, um, you know, that was his identity then. He was going to prove that to himself and to others that, that he could do it, that he belonged, that he could, not, that he could be the best. And uh, I think it really um, was, was really a passion after a while that he found his niche, that he loved this. I mean, he hadn't grown up with golf. He hadn't even grown up with sports writing, but he had found something that he loved to do um, and could be good at because through force of will, but also he had the head for it. He knew sports. So golf fell right in there. Uh, with sports. That was the mentality he brought to, to sports. And, and he was a good storyteller and, and, he, and, he, and he knew good stories. He had good news sense. He had an idea of how to present something so it was interesting. John Hawkins. I think it's Spikegate with VJ and Mickelson having a VJ having a uh, problem with Phil, with the length of Phil's spikes. Like, you know, they were usually a one millimeter long and these were a two millimeters or a millimeter and a half. And it's like, turn into this big deal. So that was probably uh, 05 because I was in the champions locker room with him. Uh, I don't remember him telling the story. I just remember that he, uh, he wasn't trying to attack anybody. He was just trying to share insight into what was going on in the game of golf and, and do it in a way that was, Interesting, compelling, but uplifting to everybody around him. Tim came back and said they almost came to blows in the locker room. And there was a pretty heated argument and people had to get up and separate them. And it forced Mickelson to, to release a statement. And Tim had that kind of impact uh, on a regular basis. That was one of the more famous ones, one of the ones that I remember. But if you went back, you could see many instances where Tim Tim's reporting had a had a pretty powerful impact on the on the, on the picture in general I was never sure what drove Tim's bus the insecurity or was it just a sincere humility you know like he's like Barry Sanders right I mean if he scored a touchdown he handed the football back to the ref because that's his job that's what he does it wasn't about fanfare it wasn't about the cel- he had no celebration dance in the end zone that Tim never danced in the end zone in his life. Tim ran around the bases with his head down every single time. Nobody ever wanted to throw a beanball at Tim Rosenford. One, you don't want that big-ass guy coming out to the mound and kicking your ass in front of everybody. But Tim was – well, it was a lot bit, It was a lot bigger than Tim's physical stature. It was his, his ability to generate trust and his ability to his, – his, his absolute – uh, insistence on getting it 100% right all the time. Tim didn't want a bad 800. A lot of sports analogies here. But Tim Tim wanted to get it right all the time. And 
and he did. He really did. He very, very rarely. He, he, I don't ever recall him making a mistake that was consequential to the meaning of a story or the just just never happened. Facts always travel. Tim's saturated Rolodex, impeccable reputation and incredible consistency had earned him a more prominent role on an alternate platform. Tim was taking on TV. And although he was getting criticized by Golf World teammates, with guys like Hawkins, who didn't like their starting running back splitting time playing center field in another sport, Tim ignored those murmurs. They definitely didn't deter him. It was all just more motivation to be an all-star at both print and broadcast. If walls were going to fall and writers were evolving into on-air talent, who better to smash those walls than golf's Bo Jackson? Back to Molly Solomon, who has spent her entire career in TV. I think people forget the bigger picture with Tim. Like we're all in the, you know, the golf industry, but, but Tim was the first really one of the first sports television insiders. You know, I remember Will McDonough in the early 90s, and he started to bring these reporters that came into television and gave you so much great reporting and information and really kind of fleshed out the stories. And Tim very much brought that to golf. So it was really being done a little bit in football, but he brought it to golf. So it was his reporting and his his Rolodex or his cell phone, which, as you know, he always had two cell phones, but he had everybody's number and everybody respected him and everybody returned a phone call. Um, and that was because of his personality and the trust that he created with people. Like you knew that if you told Tim something, that he wasn't going to misuse it or abuse it. He was going to use it to flesh out stories, but he would never embarrass you, hurt you. He'd give you a sense that something was coming. Like people trusted him when they talked to him and that made a difference. I remember when he started doing TV uh, and he be, you know, really started to raise his profile at Golf Channel. He was still working for us. He would, you know, he would do TV. You know, you could sense that he, he, he was he was doing a lot of TV and his profile, you know, he was getting famous and he was really becoming pretty well known. And and he went to great pains to make sure that I could never accuse him of, you know, neglecting his magazine work in order to do TV work. It's like it's like as the better he got at TV and the bigger he got at TV, the more the more he tried to contribute and, and do work for the magazine. And I remember talking to him one time, it was before I went to the Golf Channel. So I was still at Golf World and we were on a bus somewhere, you know, some major riding from a parking lot to the media center. And I, and he had on, you know, he had on his suit and tie and, and he was gonna, you know, he was gonna write, he was gonna do TV and then he was gonna write a story overnight and then he was gonna fly back to, you know, back to, to Orlando to do, you know, Monday TV. And I said, Tim, you know, you don't, what are you doing? Like, you don't need to work this hard. You're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to run your batteries down. You're going to kill yourself. And, and, and I want, I said, I want you to know, I appreciate everything that you've done for golf world and, 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 and how important you are to the magazine and everything you could, but you don't, if you, all you have to do is tell me, I can't do the writing anymore. 
I just want to do the TV and I will understand no hard feelings. And he looked at me like I had three heads, you know? Um, so it, I never, you know, I, I never had, I, I mean, I had a lot of people that worked for me, as you know, that, that were hard to manage and tricky to manage and, you had to find ways to motivate them. Um, Tim was Tim was never that guy. Not not one, not one single day. You know, the only the only time you ever had to give Tim a pep talk was when he when he occasionally felt, um, you know, like he wasn't good enough. <laughs> Which. Which, which is laughable, which, is, which laughable. is laughable. It sounds, it's silly. You know, it's really silly, but, but that's where he, that's where that incredible energy and, and his incredible output, that's where it all came from, was just trying to, always trying to prove himself. Meanwhile, Gary Williams, one of the original hosts of Golf Channel's Morning Drive, was one of many who benefited from Tim's lead blocking. In 2010, Williams made a successful break from radio to TV. I love television and I love sports television. And I love the history of people who blaze trails for others. And Tim is, is in a category that I think is very particular and very special. I consider Will McDonough that the grandfather of information men who took the printed word and put it in the visual medium. And then... Peter Gammons did the same thing in baseball and coincidentally from the same newspaper, the Boston Globe. Peter Vesey started doing it in basketball. Tim Rosenfort was golf's version of the insider and the one who took the, the print journalism man and put him in front of a camera and he just opened up that notebook. Here's Phil Mickelson on Tim's transition. Yeah, so Tim Rosenfort really was the first to kind of transition with the times and with the media going from print and then moving into video and television. And he did such a great job. He lost a lot of weight. He got physically fit. He uh, had a unique look when he went to the shaved head. Uh, and he just, uh, he was a very attractive guy. He looked 20 years younger than his actual age. I can't believe he's 66. He looks 45, even, even uh, the last time I saw him. And he was able to articulate as well as he could write. He was able to inflect and keep it interesting while also uh, getting the point across. It's not easy to do. Some people are great with the written words. Some people are great verbalizing things. And he was great doing both. And he really transcended into the, the video world and was the first to do it. And a lot of people followed when he was able to do it. I don't know if anybody followed quite as well or eloquently as he did, but he was, he was brilliant in being able to transition uh, his career uh, as as social media and different medias uh, came into play. Back to Jaime Diaz, who stayed pure print and internet a little longer than most great reporters and writers, mainly because he had a position at Golf Digest and Golf World that afforded him less urgency to diversify his platform portfolio. Yeah, Tim was a reporter, but he wasn't just a reporter. He had a look, he had a delivery, he had a presence on the air. He cultivated it uh, in, a, in a very professional way with his look and stayed in shape. He looked good. Um, he always wanted to learn and get better. He also studied what his niche should be. 
And that's really, I think, so important in television because it's so collaborative and there's such a, um, you know, kind of a positional specialization that, that uh, is demanded sometimes. And he had that, you know, he, he was the guy that could get anybody um, on deadline with the phone number, with the guy calling him back, with the, you know, um, the access to uh, a particular player that may not talk to anybody else. Those were really important things in print and in TV, but they really suited TV in a unique way because nobody else had that. And to be honest, no one else since really has uh, mm -hmm. to the same extent. And, uh, you know, he liked, he liked just presenting. I talked to this guy, I got him, here's what he said, and leaving it at that. He didn't need to offer his opinion. He didn't need to interpret it. He just wanted to put it out there for the other guys on the desk to talk about it. And so it was all very clean and worked beautifully. And, uh, you know, there was never enough of that. I mean, as far as the golf channel was concerned, it was like, uh, hey, Roosevelt can get him. You know, and, and we, we saw the starting with President Obama all the way down, you know, people that nobody else could get. Uh, and so, uh, you know, yes, he broke he broke a barrier, but uh, in his own way and in a way that has has not been equaled in terms of that um, that particular specialty. I would imagine you build lineups around guys like that, right? You do. He's like a part of the starting lineup, and that gets me excited because I, I I can think about a live from a major championship desk, and you've got someone like a Rich Lerner, the anchor, the quarterback, and you've got a Brandel Chambly who's analyzing, and then you wanted Tim on that desk because Tim was going to tell you everything you needed to know about the players. Brandel was going to analyze, but Tim was going to tell you about the person. And that was equally as important. I remember when I first got to Golf Channel in 2012, I moved uh, Tim into the Sunday Night Golf Centrals because you wanted to know who the guy was or the woman was who life, whose life changed that day, walking up the 18th fairway and winning a PGA Tour and LPGA Tour title for the first time. And you knew, right, Matt? He could get anybody on the phone and he would find out where they went to high school, what sport they played, and what car they drove, their first car. Like he always fleshed out a story and made it entertaining. Safe to say, Mark Mulvoy, who after retiring from Sports Illustrated has not stopped playing and watching a lot of golf, will always be one of Rosefort's biggest fans. What I used to love, you know, you'd be watching on, on, on when Timmy was on, I guess it was NBC, he was doing the, was it NBC? Yeah, he'd be doing the NBC thing. And all of a sudden there'd be some guy that nobody ever heard of, you know, Charlie Slombakovitz from South Peoria Falls, Idaho. Suddenly he'd be within four shots of the lead and they say, oh my gosh, there's Slobakovich, four shots within a lead. Tim, what do you know about him? Timmy would tell you that when he was a little league third baseman, he had a home run against a future major league pitcher, pitcher that he dated. He took his date to the senior prom, was this, he hit that. I mean, you knew more about this kid than anybody in the world. Of course, maybe the kid the next day shot 84. But the point is, Timmy provided instant information, and, and, but he knew what he was talking about. It wasn't something off the top of his head. I mean, he was Mr. Factoid uh, for the networks, which is what I really wanted him to be for Sports Illustrated. While Gary Williams is the king of recall, he respected Rosefort's Rolodex. He always has been so unassuming about all the things that he's accomplished in his career that he never liked hearing this, but it's the truth. There's nobody else walking earth 
who has every phone number of every living member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. I think he's the only one. And he's the only one, Matt, that if he calls or texts, that they're all calling him back. Now, there's a, there's a handful of guys that every Hall of Fame member is like, I'm not calling him back. But Rosie, are you kidding me? He's the king of the callbacks. Why you, being on the other side and one of the most prominent players in modern golf, why would you call Tim back? So I would always call Tim back because he would fact check and he would want to know the truth and you would – uh, when you, when you told, asked him things to be, look, this is sensitive. I don't really want to be on the record about this. He would respect that. And he wasn't trying to tear anybody down. He would present the facts, uh, based on his knowledge. And because people trusted him, they were more open with him. And they, and, and that's why he was so great at what he did as far as being an insider in the game of golf, because he earned players trust, he earned people's trust in the golf business and was able to, uh, to gather knowledge and insight because of that. And he, he handled it with, uh, as he would present it to the public, he handled it delicately uh, That situ in situations that could be a little bit sticky. He always had a, a real classy way of presenting it. Lanny Watkins always called Tim back. As a player, you ended up with writers you could trust, you know, if you will, okay? Tim Rosefort was always one I could trust. I mean, I get a kick out of telling people about Jeff Rude that know Jeff Rude. You know Jeff Rude. Rude was the Dallas Morning News golf writer when I was Ryder Cup captain. And Rude wore me out, wanted my captain's picks. I mean, he had to have these picks before I announced them the morning after the PGA because he wanted to have it in the paper. He gave me such a hard time about it, I gave him the wrong names. <laughs> he had Rude would love that. I mean, I mean, Roosevelt knows that. Um, I, I, Tim would call me about things and he and I would talk. I would be the off the record guy, if you will, for Tim on a lot of things. He would ask me questions. I'd say, Tim, you know, I really can't have my name out there about that. But if you, here's the deal, here's the scoop, here's what happened. Back to Russell on the subject of Ryder Cup captains. You know what a big deal it is when the PGA of America decides who the next Ryder Cup captain is going to be. You know, that's, that's like a big story to them. It's a big story in golf. It may, it may seem like, well, it, you know, after a couple of days, it's maybe not such a big story, but it was a big story. And three or four years in a three or four times in a row, Tim figured out, Tim got the name of the Ryder cup captain before, before anybody else. I think at least one, you know, the Tom, when, when, when Tom Watson became the captain before Glenn Eagles, Tim was the guy who got that story. And that was the most remarkable one because nobody saw Tom Watson coming. You know, nobody saw Ted Bishop was going was gonna to pick Tom Watson. And, and I remember we were at the Golf Channel then and Tim came to me and said, you know, told me that he had it. I was like, Tim, I, what are you talking about? Like, I think you're wrong. You know, I, I don't know it's going to be Tom Watson, right? And he was right. And but the but the thing I'll never forget is that he became he really became a, a a thorn in the side of the PGA of America. The PGA of America loved Tim Rosefort. You know, they 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 were in West Palm. Tim lived in West Palm and it was like a hometown thing. But man, they wanted to keep that secret until they could, you know, introduce the captain themselves, you know, they, themselves like they wanted. That's something they wanted to do. And Tim 
kept finding out and breaking the story. And and they and and they would get like you, you know they would get so angry and upset about it and and um, there was just nothing they could do. He was he was too good a reporter and had you know his sources were too impeccable um, that you know we had to we had to talk about something else. <laughs> they would just get so. Uh, Here's Matt Haggerty of the Golf Channel for more on Tim's impact on the types of breaking news that went from the ticker to Twitter and vice versa. The one that always sticks out to me was Dustin Johnson at the Masters when he when he fell down the steps. You know, um, you know, Tim was, you know, we were, you know, we were on the air. It was I, I, I think we were I think we were tr- it was weather that day and we were trying to tape the show. So we were like in this tape mode. So we were just trying to get the show to air. And then all of a sudden, Tim calls and he says, uh, hey, Dustin Johnson just fell down a flight of steps and it's questionable whether he's going to be able to play the Masters. And then the next thing you know, Tim was on the phone with all these different people, you know, whether it was Claude Harmon or Butch Harmon or David Winkle, whoever it was, you know, all these people on the inner circle of Dustin Johnson. And, um, and it was a big story because Dustin was, you know, favorite. I mean, he was, he was number one player in the world. He was favored to win the masters. I mean, it was huge. And he just, it was a really big story and he covered it and he had it all. And it was, there was, and then he delivers it perfectly you know, on air. And it all happened like boom, 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 boom. It all happened really fast. And we wouldn't have had that. Golf Channel wouldn't have been as good that day if we didn't have Tim Rosefort. We wouldn't have been good. And we were great that night because we had Tim. So that's the difference. Cut to 2019. I'll never forget the day I noticed there might be an issue. We were on set together at Morning Drive and we did a segment with Damon Hack. Although I've been victim of and witness to several glitches in memory, especially when it comes to live TV, what I saw that day in 2019 from Tim was something different. Something wasn't right. As we all emptied into the hallway outside of Studio AP, I asked the Arnold Palmer of our industry if he felt okay. He said he did. Damon Hack and I sidebarred about what we had seen. We were both concerned but not sure what to do about it. As the story goes, he was at Pebble for the 2019 U.S. Open, and things were just so far off and disoriented that Jeff Russell called Genevieve and said, we've got to send Tim home. It's just we're really concerned about him. And that was the point, basically, when his career, as he knew it, came to a close. That week at Pebble, Tim forgot Webb Simpson had won the U.S. Open. He forgot the USGA changed their playoff policy. And when asked to chase down some information on Nate Lashley, who was finishing an early round near the top of the leaderboard, Tim burst into the scorer's tent in search of an interview. Tim, of all people, knew the scorer's trailer is off-limits to the media. Matt Haggerty with his perspective. It's almost like, why didn't we say something sooner? 
you know, like, but there, there was so much, you know, television is such a, television is such a fucked up world at times, you know, and you don't, and, and you, and, and, and it, it can be, there can be tons of insecurity in it. There's tons of pressure involved in it. And I think that for a long time, we just thought that, you know, this is part of the business, you, you know, it's stressful you know, you're looking over your shoulder and um, there's, you know, and there's pressure to get things and get things right and get things right on time and quick and fast, you know, like there's so much. And I think that so much of, of some of the early signs we saw, we just thought, well, that's the pressure. And once, you know, like once we get through this, you know, it's going to get better. And once we get through this, it'll get better. And then it, it didn't and it manifested itself in a lot of different ways like asking the same question a couple different times and then you're like why is he asking me that question is he asking me that question because he wants to make sure he gets it right or is he forgetting and there's a fine line because some people ask questions because they want to make sure they, they've got it right right and you're always telling people if you've got any questions make sure you ask Right? Like, if you got any issues, ask. So he's asking. And so you walk away and you're like, I did answer that question a few times. Was he just trying to get rock solid on that? And again, that was a sign. More from Jaime Diaz. When I heard about Tim's diagnosis for Alzheimer's, I mean, it was a terrible shock. And it was the worst case scenario, obviously, uh, because there was concern that that Tim in some ways was losing some cognitive skills um, for whatever reason. And uh, it it had been going on gradually for about a year. Um, It certainly wasn't to the point where he was unpresentable on TV. He was, you know, masking it well. It was bothering him uh, that he was starting to forget a little bit more. He went to get checked out. Um, he was told it was anxiety. Um, you know, we were all concerned. We knew he played football. You know, you wondered CTE, could there be some kind of progressive problem physiologically? And, um, but I didn't, um, uh, I didn't really consider Alzheimer's, uh, because that just seems as if, um, it's, it's more, uh, well, obviously it's just more grave and, I guess I didn't want to let myself go there. Um, and Tim was in denial a bit about, not about Alzheimer's, but about the possible issues. Uh, you know, he wanted it to be anxiety. He wanted it to be something he could correct, something he could deal with. And, and he was talking to specialists and he thought he was making progress. And he and I had a lot of conversations, you know, just about how to relax. Not that I was any model of relaxation or am on television, but uh, I, I, I was sitting next to him and, you know, I knew it was going to be a struggle for whatever reason. And, you know, I'd seen him on the golf course sometimes get anxious uh, in terms of, you know, just getting in his own way uh, about the, the golf swing or whatever. And, you know, it was a strength and a weakness for him to be so conscious of, you know, how to get better, how to get better and always be, you know, focused on that. Because, yeah, it helps you get better to care so much, but it can help you get worse to, to, 
to not be able to forget uh, in the moment that, you know, all those things that you've been worried about. Let's go back to Jeff Russell. The diagnosis was crushing. I mean, it was crushing. But a, a little part of me was like, I'm, it explains a lot. You know, it, 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 to find out that he's got a medical condition explains a lot. Because what I saw, you know, what I saw happening in the last year could not have been, you know, just wasn't the Tim Roseford I, I knew, you know, it, it, it and, and, um, but, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, he is such a great storyteller and it's, and the really sad thing is to, is he's got, you know, he gets Alzheimer's, which is impacts a storyteller. Right. Um, and, and, and really, damages that. And now Jim Nance, who had gotten involved after it was clear everyone needed definitive answers. Nance's father died of Alzheimer's, and in 2011, in his father's honor, he created the Nance National Alzheimer's Center, which, since it opened, has become a world leader in Alzheimer research. The hospital in Houston treats thousands of patients a year with goals to prevent the disease, slow down memory loss, and improve the quality of life for their patients. Tim, along with his wife and daughter Molly, went to Houston for almost a week for a series of tests and analysis. Nance picked up the bill for everything that wasn't covered by insurance. Tim's been a friend of mine for a long, long time. But all of a sudden, you start hearing from the Paul Spanglers and the Davis Cessnas of the world. And I hate to even just start rattling off names because there were many, many people that said, hey, have you heard about Tim? What can you do? I mean, instantly, uh, I got on the phone and called Genevieve. I had met her and his daughters years ago. I remember when the girls were young and uh, how proud a father he was and how great a father and husband he is. Um, and I said, Genevieve, please, please, let me just get you access to our people down in Houston. Let's, let's get Tim to Houston and we can get a game plan going and we can try to give him the best care and give him a chance and give him hope. In an effort to try and educate all of us on this horrific disease, Nance put me in touch with his lead doctor in Houston, Dr. Stanley Appel, a specialist in neurology and neuromuscular medicine. Well, Alzheimer's is a very difficult proposition. It's been difficult for patients. It's been difficult for families. And it's really been hard for the medical profession to come up with a meaningful therapy. As a matter of fact, at present, there are truly no meaningful therapies. And the, the difficulty is this isn't just a diagnosis of an individual patient. This is a diagnosis that affects the whole family. The whole family is implicated. You know, during the early stages of Alzheimer's, the, the patient is aware. Uh, at the earliest stage, the family might not be aware, and only the patient might be aware. But as you progress through the varying stages, it turns out that uh, the family is aware and the patient is aware. And then we get to what I consider the most horrific part of it, when the patient is not aware and the family and friends and loved ones are so totally aware and you can't connect. 
And that's the difficulty. This interview was almost a year ago. Dr. Appel was incredibly generous with his time. And I'll follow up this podcast with much more on the disease itself from both Nance and Dr. Appel. But for now, here he is on the indicators. Is there a few things you give people to look for to to better educate them about this? Hey, it's time to go see a doctor. Well, look, uh, the experience is an interesting one. When you forget a few things, we usually say, okay, I've forgotten something, big deal. I'm just getting a little older. Well, does that happen? Sure. Uh, But then people don't act on that. Patients don't act on that. Families don't act on that. And you keep waiting. And unfortunately, in the old days, you would wait until People were acting out when they weren't themselves. Then you'd say, oh, it's hit the emotional stage. Therefore, I need to get them to the doctor to quiet things down. I think we're a lot better about this now. So uh, could there be strokes causing this? Sure. Could there be sleep apnea causing it? Sure. So the problem is... Any symptom I give you could have multiple explanations. All I would say is we need informed patients and we need informed physicians who don't make the assumption that everything is a stroke or everything is anxiety, depression, which people are too easy to implicate. I asked Nance for his advice on how to best handle a situation in which a loved one is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I just got to the point where I savored every stage with my dad, even though I would say for the last five years, you couldn't really tell if he even knew who you were. But, you know, the next year would come around and you think, man, I, I wish he was at the stage he was a year ago. So I quickly learned that you have to like realize what you have that moment. It's, it's as good as it's gonna be because it's only gonna continue to go down a path where it just, it worsens. So savor, savor the moment, take it for what it is. They're trying their hardest. I used to look at my dad and think that somewhere inside of him, he knows exactly what I'm saying He just can't respond. He doesn't have the ability to connect everything and show you that he's hearing you. And he wants to. I was trying to do some reading as to how I should communicate with Tim and not try to make him feel frustrated that he can't remember and, and, or just fill in the gaps for them prior to even teeing him up for a story. Like I just struggle with that. And I wonder, am I, what do I need to be doing right or wrong to, Before we get to that, and I'll get to that in a minute, uh, everyone asked me to predict the future. Doc, how long is my loved one going to? When is it going to be worse? And we can't do it. None of us can do it because everyone is different. So that's the first issue. One day at a time, you know, that's all we're given. One day at a time. So the one day at a time implies patience. It's patience on the family's part. It's patience on the loved one's part. It's patient on the great friend's part. So we don't have to remind people that they're 
slipping. They know it at early stages. You know it. Uh, let's not try and make them smarter because that's frustrating for them, frustrating for you. Let's remember a couple of things. Number one, most patients with Alzheimer's have great memory of things 30 years ago. It's very comforting. Music is very comforting. So let's take out the picture album of what it was like 30 years ago when we were young, when we did daring things. That's comforting. It's comforting for the patient. It's comforting for you as a great friend. Music, music that you all love. Amazing to me how music and dancing at some of our centers is an effective way to keep patients involved, happy, and remembering what days were like. So when you lose function, you lose the most recent function. What did I have for breakfast? What did I do yesterday? What did I do the day before, etc. That happens to all of us anyway. But when we go back 20 or 30 years, we may forget the name, but we don't forget the experience. We don't ever forget, you know, it's not what you said that I remember, it's how you made me feel. That you don't forget. And that you can relate to. And guess what? Even patients with Alzheimer's can relate to that. So there's no reason to challenge anyone to remember anything yesterday or the day before. Get in their comfort zone and really address their comfort zone so their days can be better. While Nance was getting Rosefort access to his hospital and doctors, the rest of us were doing the best we could to connect with our friend. By the summer of 2020, Tim and I had both been bought out of our Golf Channel contracts. NBC and Molly Solomon, the channel's executive producer, honored the full two years Tim had left on his deal, which meant a lot to him and his family. I had the time and opportunity to make the same drive Tim had made so often over the course of his career, Orlando to Palm Beach. I'd pick him up at his house on Sunday afternoons, and we would play the Palm Beach Par 3. The course would give us the run of the place. Tony, the pro, never charged us. Patrick, the starter, always had a cart waiting. We'd jump around, hit some shots, drink a beer, have some fun. If it was too hot, we'd just sit at the bar and eat lunch. It was a series of Sundays with Rosie. Started with a par and ended with a par. How good is that? Johnny Hawk, where are you, man? You would have been <laughs> mad at that one. <laughs> that would have won you a lot of money. I think so bad, though, John. I hope you're doing well, doing well and I uh, miss you. We had some good times on the road, some not so good times. It's what, it's what life's all about, right? Amen, buddy. Later. I was often joined on these trips by Jeff Russell, Craig Dolch, Davis Cessna, and Matt Hegarty. I'll never, ever forget that day. You know, I'll never, ever forget that day. I won't, I won't, you know, from picking him up, from drive, from driving down and not knowing if we were actually going to meet him that morning. Um, to him coming out, getting in your car, you couldn't move because you just had a spinal tap. 
um, a few days earlier. So he's still sore. Breakfast. He was funny. He drank a lot of iced tea that morning. And then over to the Atlantic Ocean, sitting there, looking at it, talking, remembering it, crying, laughing. And then I remember him asking for beer. He wanted to go get beer. So we went back and we had a couple beers. I mean, it was a really, it was a beautiful day, you know? And then at the very end, and it was like the whole thing, everything was like, everything was all right. You know, like all day, everything was all right. All morning, everything was all right. And then we get out of the car and it's been you and me and Tim all day. And I get out, I was sitting in the back and I get out of the car and Timmy had gotten out of the car and we were walking and he turned around and he looked at me and he says, hey, is there, is there anybody in the car I need to say goodbye to? Love you guys, let's do this again. Yes, I hope to, buddy. I'm gonna be down. I'm around for another month, you too, so I'm gonna come back now. Cool. 109, is this it? I missed Tim Rosefort. Besides the occasional FaceTime and because my family and I had moved to San Diego, the last time I saw him was in November 2020, the weekend of his second daughter's wedding. It was so good to watch him see Molly get married to Mason. They had moved up the date, the Cessnas hosted it, and it was an incredibly special evening in Palm Beach. Here's more from Davis Cessna. First and foremost is is a great friend of mine. Uh, I'm uh, I'm blessed to have him as a friend, and I'm flattered uh, that he calls me a friend. Uh, and he he is a giver. Uh, they're givers and takers in life, and Tim has always been a giver. Even when he was on the taking side of an interview where he had to get a story out, uh, he was giving of his heart and respect uh, to the questions uh, and to the performance. Uh, he has done that. Uh, you know, he and Genevieve have been married a long time with beautiful kids. Uh, and uh, he, uh, uh, he never hung out after the show he most half the time I would talk to Tim and I'm sure it was with you Tim was uh on the road between Orlando and West Palm Beach uh that was the time he had to talk uh because he wanted to get home uh to the family uh and um uh this Alzheimer's for Tim it it, it is devastating for him and us because we've sort of felt he was just coming into his celebrative years of being a journalist uh, where he was getting the best stories. Uh, he could walk into any door anywhere in the world. Uh, he had achieved the respect and notoriety uh, to uh, perform at the level he always wanted. Uh, and then it, it just shut him down. Uh, it's not right. Uh, and uh, uh, it just hurts. Uh, we love the guy. And uh, he, uh, he so wants to be back. Uh, and, you, and, and when you talk to him, you so 
want him to be back and he can't be and and that's painful Rosefort had an aggressive case of the horrific disease and as a result he fell he broke his hip and that only exacerbated his decline prior to the fall a wide variety of his friends would visit Tim here's Bob Ford again the pro at Seminole in Oakmont who would see Tim on a regular basis during the opens at Oakmont, you know, he would stay with me and uh, we had a gal that would cook uh, for everybody that week. And, uh, you know, he came home late, as you like you would. And, you know, 10, 10, 30, 11, I, I'm already in bed. I'm not waiting up for him. And this gal was so enthralled with who he was and he was so sweet to her, as you can imagine. And she weighed up for him and cook, you know, heat his food up for him and he'd eat and then go to bed. And uh, so we didn't, we didn't get a chance to talk a lot during that week or, you know, week of a U.S. Open. He's obviously, and we're both busy, but, uh, you know, those were great times that we had together and we played a lot of golf together. He's come over to Seminole a lot to hit some balls with me. And we've had a few lunches this, uh, this season together with a few of the guys that he knows. And, uh, you know, he's, he's incredibly engaging and he's Timmy pretty much during the whole time, you know, he'll, you know, when they leave, you know, well, tell me again his name and, and things like that. But uh, all in all, I think he's been doing really well. John Hawkins would send Tim video messages, which I'd play for Tim while we were on the golf course. To the man who taught me more about being a golf writer than anybody on earth, to the man who got me on more great golf courses for free than anybody on earth, than, than any 25 people on earth, to my hero, my friend, my idol, one of the greatest men I've ever met, T. Rose. How about that putt on 18, bro? Oh, my goodness. We could have used that at Hillside, as Matty G pointed out. <laughs> you can slap Matty G upside the head for that one. Matty G, huge shout-out for sending me a video. And, Tim, I love you, brother. I miss you. I talked to Rude as soon as I uh, got the previous movie. We're both thinking of you. We both love you. You've been such a huge part of our lives. You get better. You hang in there. You hang tough. I know you will because you don't know any other way. One of the hardest working guys I've ever been around. Probably the most influential journalist in my career, Tim Rosefort. I can't thank you enough, brother. If there's anything I can do to make your life better, please give me a shout. I love you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Tim would often ask to fire back. Johnny Hawk here with T. Rose, Palm Beach, Par 3. I told him you gave him a call today and wish him nothing but the best. Johnny Hawk, where you been, man? <laughs> I miss you. I had nobody to fight against him with over the last 10 years. <laughs> so it's taken this little injury, minor, maybe potential setback to move up to a couple of tees, grandpa tees. You're used to that anyway, right? <laughs> Tell Rude I said, hey, you know, let's spend some time together. I was talking about you a couple times in the last month with people, and here you are, Johnny Hawk. Johnny like, Hawk. Just, just like yesterday, Johnny Hawk. Yeah. Come check me out, man. The guy with all the memories doesn't get to share them, and that's it's horrible, but... You know, life is not fair, and this is just yet another very grim and nasty reminder of that, of that premise. Here's Jaime Diaz on his last trip to see Tim. 
you went and saw him not not that long ago, right? I saw him in September last time. And what was that like? Well, he was in uh, the facility near his home. He was when I, uh, you know, he, he was watching television. Uh, he was dressed, uh, laying in bed, uh, a little a blanket over him. He, he was he'd get chills. He was watching a college football game. Uh, I walked in and uh, the uh, the nurse that had brought me up to his room said, a friend of yours is here. And he didn't respond. And I thought, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm too late. And then, uh, you know, about a minute later, he, he goes, hey, what are you doing here, Jaime? And uh, he recognized me. It was odd. And I guess, it, you know, consciousness and recognition and, you know, all the cognitive things that uh, fly in and out with Alzheimer's are kind of random. So then we, uh, I said, hey man, great to see you. You know how he, you know, kept it light, obviously. Um, and I, even though, you know, his short-term memory was, was poor and, and he was kind of watching the game in this sort of, uh, you know, erratic way. We were talking about old days and those, those conversations, they weren't long ones, but they were cogent, you know, and you'd have a nice little, you know, three or four word uh, retort to something, or he'd laugh if he remembered a name or if I mentioned a name or mentioned an old story or a punchline. So, you know, it was, it was nice just to connect, even though I knew I probably, if I came back again, he wouldn't recognize me. So, um, I stayed about 45 minutes and just, you know, just sat at the foot of his bed. Um, it was kind of time to go. I could tell he was getting tired. And that, you know, I told him, uh, started talking about, you know, the business a little bit and what a great career he'd had and how everybody missed him. And uh, I always remembered that uh, when I first got started writing about golf, I was always impressed by, because we were, you know, I wasn't making a lot, even though I was at Sports Illustrated, and I was very, very lucky to be there. It was still uh, like a thousand bucks here or there was a big deal. And I started noticing in these tournament programs, when I'd go to a tournament, that this guy, Tim Rosaford, always had a freelance story in there. And, uh, and I knew he wasn't a staffer for the tournament because it was at every tournament. It was like five or six of them in a row. And he had been freelancing those things just out of industry and, and his work ethic. And uh, so I started asking about those and emulating them. And, you know, I didn't do nearly as many as him, but I did a couple. And, and um, I told him, I said, Tim, I followed you, man. I followed you. I followed your work ethic. I followed your industry. I followed, uh, you know, the way that uh, you just really made that, that job your life or tried to at least, and, or I tried to. And he goes, no, no, I followed you. And uh, I said, no, Tim, I followed you. And he goes, I followed you. And so it was this sort of emphatic thing that, you know, very kind of mutual admiration and, and love really. And uh, so I, we both laughed, uh, but um, you know, I just stay, I put my hand on his, put my hand on his, on his ankle and I told him I loved him and, uh, he goes, I love you, man. I love you. And it was sort of this, you know, I'll see you again kind of voice. And, uh, and I left. And yeah, you know, uh, you know, we all, you always hear about male toxicity and how we're un unable to express emotion. 
And uh, I mean, I've always been kind of a softy anyway, but uh, I might, I might, I might, uh, I mean, I'm not a tough guy. I don't mean that. I just meant, you know, you, sometimes you compartmentalize things away and, and moments like that, you realize that you're just a kid and, and things touch you. And it's good to, uh, it's good to share that with another human that you've known a long time and you care about uh, and just feel like, okay, this is life and it ends. But, you know, I felt like I closed the circle and as much as possible, at least, but, you know, doesn't mean that it wasn't horribly sad, but it was at least something we're all going to experience at some point. And, and I thought when I left him, I, you know, not, not because of me, but I, I just thought he's at peace. He's okay. This has not been emotionally um, something that he hasn't been able to handle. Now, of course, I didn't see all the moments, but I just got the sense that he had a, a good handle on, on everything, that he'd lived a great life. He had a great family. Yeah, it was going to be too short, but he did his best. And um, a lot of people loved him. And I, because I, 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 you know, when I signed in, and that was just like a Sunday morning, I believe. Um, in September, and it was at, it was at uh, I think I got in there, 11.45. There were three names in front of me that day. And then the day before I turned the page back, there had been like six names. Mm. So people were visiting Tim constantly. And, you know, everybody was doing the best they could to show him. And, and I, I think he actually knew. Shifting gears and as a celebration of his life and legacy, we're circling back to get more uplifting memories and reflections from friends, colleagues, and players. Starting again with Jeff Russell. Modern day golf writers, reporters. I mean, he's on the Mount Rushmore for me. I, I, I think he is. You know, I think he is. I think, I mean, I think, you know, modern, you know, you, you got Tim, you got Jaime, you got Alan Shipnuck. Um, but Tim, Tim you know, Tim was the first one to make that transition from, from writing to television. And look, at the end of the day, television was, was probably his best medium. Um, when you talk to, you talk to the, the producers at the Golf Channel back in probably from 2002 on, and they talk about how they'd be doing a show and so, you know something would fall through, or this would fall, or something would happen, you know, or somebody was late showing up for a press conference, and they'd have ten or twelve minutes, and they would they didn't know what to do, and they would put they would put Tim up and just say you know kind of the TV version of empty your notebook, and he and he would he would do it, and he would kill it. He was you know full of information, full of of nuggets, you know, and. And it was, and it, but it, really interesting TV. And he was, you know, he was the first one in golf to do that. There were, you know, Adam Schefter and Tim Kirchin and Peter Gammons. And I'm thinking of all the experts in other sports, but, but golf, you know, in golf, Tim was, you know, Tim was that guy. And, um, and a lot of really good golf writers, couldn't make that transition, you know, weren't, weren't, um, you know, look, TV's hard. It's not, it's, it's, 
you know, it's hard to get up in front of a camera and, and, and be yourself and, and, and be entertaining. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people think it's easy. It's not easy. It's hard, but Tim was, Tim was, was really good at it and maybe better at it than, than he was, you know, working in a media center, although he was good at that too. Here's more from Jaime Diaz. Jim's got his own spot. You know, uh, I always measured myself from a different way and I felt way short in that. I mean, there were guys and, you know, friends to this day, you know, who I know, you know, I just, I, I, I did not have their ability or their talent and, and I'm good with that. I mean, I think we all just run our own race, you know? Um, and I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm very satisfied with the race I ran. I could have run it better, but I'm just saying it was not going to approach the race. A lot of guys ran, but, but Tim had his own lane, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, you look back, I mean, talking to Rick Riley, who's one of those guys who I would never be able to approach. He, he, you know, he used to call Tim Trunky <laughs> because the, the job at SI when Tim, when, when Rick was doing a, a, a major was for the other guys to go out and get stuff. And Tim was his, you know, secret weapon, Nick. He was the guy that, you know, he could really count on to get something from somebody who would be otherwise hard to get or in a difficult, difficult uh, you know, maybe moment where they had maybe blown it or whatever. Uh, talking about a player, I mean. And so he called him Trunky because he said, look, I want you to be there when he opens the trunk in the morning in the parking lot and when he slams it at night and he leaves. And <laughs> and so that's what Tim did. <laughs> but, you know, those files he gave to Rick, you know, were just like for Hawk, you know, those were gold. And, uh, you know, nobody could do that better than Tim. More from Mark Mulvoy. I think he'll go down as as really perhaps the most intrepid reporter maybe the game has seen. It was that way both in print and on television, you know. I mean, the obfuscatory rhetoric, rhetoric that I think pervades these broadcasts, the thing I worry about right now in all of these, what's going on is, my God, you never hear a discouraging word on any of these telecasts uh, in any sports, you know. And the dot-coms and all these major leagues, it's sort of like proud of, you know, state-controlled media. It's really... I always think I visited once in Moscow the offices of Komsomolskaya Pravda. And that's what, when you read these various pro leagues, they think, say, oh my God, this is just, you know, state controlled. And uh, Timmy was not controlled by anybody. Timmy was controlled by his instincts, and his instincts were those of a great, great, great reporter. And here's Craig Dolch. When you think about how he's been honored since this happened, you know, when the PGA of America made him the 12th. Uh, honorary lifetime member, the first journalist. He was able to get the award from Jack for Memorial. Uh, you know, Jim Nance presented him up at, uh, at the Memorial. Uh, Honda Classic named the media room after him. They created the Tim Rosefort Distinguished Writers Award. You know, all these things happened. You know, the University of Rhode Island endowed a scholarship in his name. So there's always going to be a, a, a college student going to University of Rhode Island and Tim, there weren't a lot of college graduates in his, his family. He was among the first to really get serious about it and to know that, you know, Tim has left something behind. At least he's had some time to kind of uh, experience the love that people have for him. And, and I think that's the, the one thing that helps a little because I know even though it, it can be, you know, not the same as if he was there in full body and spirit, he knows that people love him and 
And I think that's helped him get through the last two and three years. And I know it's helped his family get through it as well. In June of 2021, Tim wasn't able to make it to Ohio to accept his award from Jack and Barbara Nicholas. So instead, they made a video of Tim sitting with the Nicholases. Jim Nance led to the video. Trust is an important thing I always felt, yeah. Jack. And, you know, you, you can't walk away from a great story, even if it was, it was just how you placed it and how you word it. And so you could tell the whole story and still and, and have and have a relationship with someone over the course of time. That's right. And you respect the guy, his, his, his intelligence, his, his work ethic and where he went and what and what he did. And Tim Rosefort was that type of person, still is. I'll never forget, sadly, Jack, the day that, that I called you to tell you what, what, what's going on with me medically. And when you talk about authenticity, um, it couldn't have been more than that, than that day that we went through that, Jack. There's billions of people that love Jack, but you know, the way he handled, the way he felt over that was obviously something that I don't think I'll ever forget. So thank you for everything, starting from that. God bless, would you? Barb, thanks love for you. everything over all this time. <laughs> Back to Matt Hegarty on the industry rally around Tim Rosefort. I've been so uh, impressed with the golf world on this. I've been so impressed with the with the people in this space, whether it's the USGA or the PGA Tour or the PGA of America. Um, Jim Nance. I mean, you know, it's a great it's a great industry. It's a great sport. It's a great sport. I think it's part of the reason why we're so attracted to the sport. It's a great sport. We really do. I think, I do think we look out for our own. We look after our own, you know, and I, and, and, and when it's somebody like Tim, when it's a legend, when it's the Godfather, even more so big bear hugs all the way around. Jaime Diaz. Could you describe him in one word? Huh? I always think of warmth. I know, you know, I always think of heart. I know his effort and, and but I think what was so endearing and uh, what formed his relationships and the relationships became the basis for his work was the, uh, the ability to connect with people and to really have a relationship, to really uh, be friends, you know, to put aside, um, you know, the compartmentalization that we all do in work and in journalism very often even ask you to do that. He had a, a, a gift for, uh, for being friends, being able to write about people, still being professional and sometimes, you know, having to temporarily at least wound that friendship, but always healing it because Tim was a healer. Tim, you know, you couldn't stay mad at him and he could get mad, but he, he wouldn't even stay mad forever either um it, it just there was a it was just a big heart and um great sentiment great sense of the right thing to do and and um the right way to treat people and decency and just those virtues those human virtues i think that's what i think of because um that's why i loved him um you know we all work we all try to do our best in the end that's not what defines us as much as the kind of people we are and tim was uh a special person and that you know it's reflected by how many friends he has um how many people loved him molly solomon 
He always wanted to get better and be the best at what he did. But in a really, um, I, I use the word earnest to describe him. And when I went in the thesaurus and looked at him um, and said, you know, is that the best way to describe Tim? And uh, besides earnest came up diligent, heartfelt, impassioned, purposeful, and sincere. Tim Rose report. Jeff Russell. I mean, gentle. You know, um, I mean, one word, I, you know, he, he, he is, he's, um, um, you know, the word I would, I would say, you know, just, just like indefatigable, like, like you couldn't, um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't make him work hard enough. You couldn't, you couldn't outwork him, you know, he, so, but, but, but as just gentle, sweet, kind, um, you know, good to, you know, never, I don't think he really ever big timed anyone good to, you know, always good to, you know, you know, I told you the story of him being nice to me when I was 25. Eventually I was, eventually I was 45 and the boss, you know, and, and he would, he would tell me about some other young kid who was just starting out in the, you know, some, Hey, you know, you ought to pay attention to that so-and-so golf writer that, you know, and I'd be like, who, like, you know, and, and he'd be like, Hey, Hey, you know, like, don't be, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you here. You know, you might need to hire that guy someday. You know, you might want to, I mean, he never stopped, you know, he never stopped doing that. Jerry Tardy. Well, everybody uses it. It's, it's trust. Uh, he had everybody's cell number. Everybody called him back. Um, you knew he was going to give you a fair shake. And to use that old Bob Jones line, when he got the unfair shake of all, he still met life with a smile on his face and a gratefulness in his heart. And that's why we love everybody did. The people he covered, the people who rode alongside him, the people who managed to try to manage him, but he didn't need any managing. He, 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 marked, he marched to his own drummer. Craig Dolch. Well, loyal, you know, I mean, I can't begin to tell you, you know, what he's done. I mean, it'd be hard to walk into a media center these days and not find someone that Tim has really played a huge role in their lives. You know, whether it was just some advice, whether it was making a phone call for somebody, writing somebody up on, on a resume, you know, a, a nice reference letter. Uh, for me, it always goes back to my son, Eric. Uh, Eric uh, almost died of encephalitis in 2005. And it was a really, as you can imagine, a heartbreaking event, not only to have this happen, to have your healthy 14-year-old son go to completely disabled. We didn't know if he was going to live. We had no idea what we were going to do for the money. And Tim just took it upon himself to plan a fundraiser the week of the Honda Classic in 2006. And all he ever asked for me was just some names of friends and family that I would want invited to it. And uh, that's all I really did at the time. I was living up in Boston. My son was in rehab up there trying to get better. And we came down to the Monday before the Honda Classic. And Tim had this thing all planned at Old Palm. He'd gone to Raymond Floyd and Maria Floyd. And they had everything was, you know, picked up. And the amount of money we received that night was overwhelming. I mean, it enabled us to to buy a wheelchair accessible van, to do the accommodations we had to, to do to our house before our son could come home. Uh, you know, just how do you say thank you to somebody who did something like that? I mean, you say thank you when people open the door for you. 
you know, it's just beyond uh, amazing what he did. He never asked for anything. You know, he wasn't, you know, okay, I did this for you, you know, the, the scratch your back type stuff. That's just what Tim did. And obviously my situation is a little unique, but I would think you and everyone else out there can think of countless times that Tim has done things for you. You know, even when it came to coming on the golf channel, we had a radio show every Sunday morning for eight, nine years. And every once in a while, I'm like, I hate to do this, but I'm going to ask Tim again. And Tim never said no. He was always willing to put to spend those 10, 15 minutes. You know, as, as successful as Tim became, he never really lost his his presence as a uh, down-to-earth individual, and he cared about people. Phil Mickelson. Class is the way I would describe Tim because of the way he treated people, handled himself. Everything he did was with class, whether it was his family, his career, his friends. He, he, uh, he just always handled himself with such dignity and, and, and class. John Hawkins. Dogged. D-O-G-G-E-D. And I mean that. As somebody who's not dogged, uh, Tim was the greatest partner you could ever have. For, at least I could. I mean, just this fountain of it. Having Tim reporting your story was like having Raquel Welch as your waitress. It's like, I can't do any better than that. Here's Damon Hack. A giant of golf journalism, someone who I read before I met, which was pretty cool to finally meet him. I mean, I read his Raising the Bar on Tiger uh, back in 2000, kind of giving us an inside look to, to the greatness of Tiger. And I'm reading this guy and I'm thinking, man, this guy is, is someone who I want to be. This is a great writer, a great reporter. Uh, you could tell how tireless he was in his research. And then to finally meet him, in the early 2000s when I started covering golf uh, for Newsday and to share press rooms with him, just so impressive, larger than life, intense, but uh, a teddy bear at the same time, someone who could you know, host a golf writer's dinner uh, at Augusta National and make us laugh and not miss a beat to someone who could ask Tiger or Jack or Arnie the, the toughest question and, and get a great answer. Um, I loved working with him at Golf Channel, someone who was so meticulous and insensitive too. And for someone who is a giant of our game and journalism would sometimes have you know, little fits of, of vulnerability. Damon, how did that go? Did I do a good job? I'm like, man, I would say, Tim, you just be Tim. Nobody has your Rolodex. Nobody has your reach in the game. You know, no one else can say, you know, I spoke to Tiger, I spoke to Jack, I, I, or find, you know, Peter Malnati's childhood swing coach, or I just talked to the head pro at uh, Tyler Duncan's club, you know, in Indiana. I mean, the guy just, his reach was just breathtaking. And so cool to grow up reading someone at SI and Golf Digest and read his books, and then to be able to share a morning meeting with Tim Rosefort, I, I would walk by him, you know, at his desk at Golf Channel, and I would just say, there's the legend, there's the legend that he was on. I said, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, all right, all right. But I knew he liked it, too, on a certain level, because he, he is a legend, a giant of golf journalism. I, I, lo I love Rosie, love him. Matt Hegarty. 
You know, I just think everybody trusted him that he was that it was going to be fair. Like it might, it wasn't always going to be what you didn't always. You, it wasn't all like whoever he was reporting on or whatever he was reporting about. It, there was obviously, you know, in certain circumstances, it wasn't going to make everybody happy. You know, it wasn't going to make everybody happy, but it was going to be fair. And I think at the end of the day, that's, I think that's what everybody wants. They want to be treated fairly, right? And Tim treated everybody fairly. And Ron Syrak. Tim and I are about the same age. In fact, he's younger than me. I think he's five years younger than me. And uh, which when all this broke, just was like bone chilling for me. Uh, so we were sort of uh, of the same generation, but talk to somebody who's 20 years younger than him. And one of the things that they'll tell you is how generous he was with his time, how generous he was with his contacts. He would help people. Uh, he, would, he, would give, he would give young writers advice. He would share contacts with, with, with young writers to help them on a story. So there was not only an innate fairness in the man, an innate goodness in the man. Here's Gary Williams. He always did the right thing, Matt, because you know what? Never burned one person. Nobody ever turned their back on him. And the lines of communication with Tim and every interview subject or every important figure in the game of golf was always wide open. That never changed. It never changed. And, and for somebody who loved the game of golf, God, I wish the game loved him a little bit more back. <laughs> so true. Well, I played in one member guest with the man. One member guest. He invites me to medalist to play in the member guest in 2012. And Jordan's playing, Tiger's playing, Keegan Bradley, Ahmad Rashad. And he is so uptight. The practice round, we play with Ken Kennerly, who's a dear lifelong friend of mine, and his guest. And, and on the second tee, he starts with, I'm sorry. You're sorry? We played one hole. Davis Cessna. Tim uh, became a golfer reporting on golf. And I must say, he was a much better reporter than he is a golfer. <laughs> Ain't so. that the truth? He's like a plus eight at reporting. He's like an 18-time major champion of reporting, but he's poor guy's struggles on the, on the go. I think he got his probably as low as about an eight handicap, I think. Is, uh, well, he's so, he's so competitive, but every time I see him go to hit a shot, I, I feel like the Wizard of Oz. I want to go get the oil can. <laughs> <laughs> he's laughing right now too i can tell you that more from phil mickelson his legacy is how um the, and the way he'll be remembered will be how he made you feel because he would uh gather knowledge gather information present it do his job and transcend into his business be the best at what he did but he would always make you feel good and positive about it. He, he was never trying to take unnecessary shots. He would always try to present facts in a very sensitive way. And, and I think uh, that his legacy is going to be the way he made you feel when you were around him. Did you ever see his golf swing? Uh, I have, and I've, I've tried to suppress that memory. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the memories we have, 
not many of us are going to try to remember his, his eloquent golf swing, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Lanny Watkins. Tim always wore me out because we played each other once in a member member tournament at the Floridian and he he and his partner beat me and my partner. So I, I have never lived that down that I lost a match to Tim Rosafort. I mean, it's probably the lowest point of my career that I lost a match to Tim Rosafort. I don't, I don't know how it gets worse than that. Um, he could not play. <laughs> yeah, he could. But he loved the game, and uh, he's a dear friend. I miss him. I miss seeing him, and uh, I want to wish him all the best because I, I – and he does. He is one and zero against me, and so that that will stick with me forever. Mark Mulvoy, thank you so much for asking me to do this. Timmy was a treasure. I loved every, all the moments we spent with him. Uh, I, we had a very heartfelt. Uh, I said a very heartfelt goodbye last year. I thought uh, you know it was it, it was coming, and uh, unfortunately, we seem to be at that moment. Uh, God bless him. He, he's a great guy. He'll be. I always have fond memories of him and what he did for me, what he did for Sports Illustrated, and what he obviously did for Golf World, Golf Digest, and also uh, for television. I mean, when's the last time somebody on television told you things about people that not even the people knew? Nobody does that anymore. Reporting is a lost art. Again, Jerry Tardy. It really, in my mind, was the 1990s. It built up to it in the latter half of the 80s, but... It was a golden age of journalism. When you look back at the number of writers who were, had come together and sat at our table uh, from you know, uh, the end of, of Herb Wind and uh, Alistair Cook, um, Pat Ward Thomas, uh, certainly Peter DeBriner, one of the great poets of, of the, the game, but Dan Jenkins joining us, Charlie Price, Tom Callahan, uh, and then Dave Kindred, Peter Andrews, the, the start of, of Jaime Diaz and Tim Rosefort. Tim brought a different step than any of those others. Um, but he was right there at the top in terms of respect. And I think there was, there was what you talk about, that, that humility, that vulnerability that he had because he'd been kicked around as a writer, that he brought preparation to the table like nobody else. And all those great voices would, would quiet when Tim talked because he had the real stuff. Um, they could take it and make it into poetry, some of them, uh, and they could make it funny and, uh, Tim was was a such a, a believable, humble guy uh, that that just carried tremendous respect. Craig Dolch. And I can't tell you how many times I'd walk into the PJ National uh, entrance, go into a Honda cover of the day's tournament, and we'd be headed to the media center. I'd be there with Tim, and I would never make it there with Tim because after about halfway through the lobby. Everyone's like, hey, Tim, Rosie, you know, and I'm like, look, I'm like, how do you know all these people? How do you remember all these people? And he said something that was very, I thought was very interesting was he said, it's like a PGA professional. You know, when you go to work in the morning and, and a member walks in the door at 7.05 in the morning, you better know who their name is. 
And I think that was, gets back to kind of what we've talked about, Tim, is his workmanlike ethic. You know, he was a, a guy that stayed at, at, at some really, you know, got to do some very special things in his life. But he was still a nine to five kind of guy who punched the clock every day, who worked as hard as he could and who wanted to know your name. And, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that is I, I'm surprised Tim remembers my name. You know, I'm not a big shot, but that's the way Tim was. Tim remembered everybody's name. And because of that, I think we're always going to always remember Tim Rosefort's name. And we ended all with Jeff Russell. You know, you'd get to the end of the year and you'd count up the bylines. Nobody had as many bylines as he did. And, and um, you know, he, he, he just was always, you know, always working, always, always on it. And, and I think doing, you know, doing it cause he was, he was, it was a kind of a mixture of, he loved doing it. And, and I think he, he also knew that he'd come a long way from, from what is, you know, the life his father had, you know, and his, his family had and that, and, you know, in, uh, in New York. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I couldn't believe, you know, I, I think he reached it. He was like, I can't believe I'm here in South Florida where it's, you know, sunshine's 365 days a year and I'm playing golf and, and I'm just, you know, I don't ever want it to end. I don't ever want it to end. It's just an amazing life. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Settle down and settle in The story here is about to begin The circle's starting to take its shape Seats are filled in the tired sun Plans its escape And everybody's got some glory Just wait to unfold And everybody's got some story Just wait to be told The place for that is here All those smiles and all those tears Let them go Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Settle down and settle in The story here is about to begin were told of war and gold Lovers lost in a lifetime's Dreams that were sold Maybe you should stop and listen At the wisdom in the air Maybe you should pour your heart out We ain't going anywhere Find your mercy in the sound As the smoke gets pushed around in your soul
Put another log on the fire Nobody here's getting tired Settle down and settle in The story here's about to begin The story here's about to begin The story here's about to begin